Well, good morning. I know uh, Charlie's talked a lot about this. He's kind of into roller coasters. I not so much. Uh, I I I don't know what happened. I had this this really bad experience with a teacup. Has anybody had that experience? And after that, it, it kind of you know for a while there, I just kind of said, you know, I'm not really into that. And that was cool until you know we had these boys that start they're growing up and they're starting to ride roller coasters and want to ride roller coasters and dads dad's not going to be the scaredy cat that says uh uh-uh, I'm not going right so so the first time that Caleb started getting really old enough to do that and we we got on that first roller coaster uh, I found out something about myself that that I didn't know and uh, and I don't know if you've had this happen but like man I mean I've lived enough years that you feel like you know yourself pretty well. And then something happens or you're put in a situation that you haven't been in before and you find out, oh, I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't see that one coming. And um, so we're on this roller coaster and it comes to that first drop and speed starts to pick up. And something inside of me, it, it wasn't and it's not because it happens every time now, right? If I, if I ride a roller coaster, it's, it's not that I lose my stomach. It's not fear. I, I think it must be joy. But it manifests itself as a, as a, a little girl <laughs> who likes to giggle. And so we, we, we'll come up over here, and, and the first time it happened, it really surprised me. Like, <laughs> and, I, and it just gets louder, and the pitch gets higher, and, and it's really embarrassing. And the boys are embarrassed by it, and, and I have to make a conscious decision. Like, if we went today, I mean, I would have to, at the beginning of the ride, decide... I am I'm going to take the little girl and lock her in a closet and she's going to try to get out but I'm not going to let it happen you know and you'll you'll I'll be kind of now I'm trying to keep my mouth shut and then there's sometimes that just despite the boys I'm like hey man she's here she's here I mean picture a little girl with the the uh oh the Wendy's girl you know like pigtails and the whole nine <laughs> um yeah, so that's one of those embarrassing things about me. And I didn't know that that was true. And there are other things that are like that. The truth is we don't really know ourselves all that well. And then you're in a situation where somebody asks you a question or you're put in a, in a predicament and, and the real you starts to come out. And we also don't know our God very well. You know what? I mean, the truth is we are not... Uh, very literate in our in our bible there are things about god that we haven't really sought and thought deeply about and the result of that when it comes to worship is that we if you did if you knew yourself and you knew your god really well then worship would be something that would be a compulsion you know you wouldn't be able to stop it and instead because we don't we end up in this place where it becomes very formalized and the heart and the passion is removed from it and this is the last week of this series, and this is really what we've been trying to look at. I know everybody vacation, you're here some, you're gone some. So let me recap it a little bit. What we're, we're, that question we're asking is, who am I? Who, what is our identity, really? And then the question from God to us, who am I? What, who is he, and, and what, uh, what authority does he have in our lives? And we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 6, and this, this picture of Isaiah in this prophet, in the presence of God. And the things that he sees and experiences and, and what happens, it's been the thing that we've been looking at to ch- kind of shed light on who are we and who is uh, this incredible God. 
And what happens if you've, uh, if you've been around, what, what happens, you know, Isaiah is in the presence of God and immediately he realizes this incredible truth that, that <laughs> this is God and I am not him. Which seems really basic. It seems like everybody would go, yeah, of course. But the truth is there is a realization that we have to come to that, that this God is holy and that means he is set apart in every way, specifically in his purity. And that's the reason that Isaiah responds with, woe is me. There's, there's a distance here. And he responds in brokenness. But then the next big realization is that, that God comes and this statement is said over, the, over uh, Isaiah that his sin is taken away. His guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for that there's this redemption that takes place. And so the identity of a true follower of Christ is that we, uh, like Isaiah says later in chapter 53, all we like sheep have turned away. We've gone our own way. But the Lord has laid up on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, that we are both broken and have sinned against a holy God. And then at the same time, this incredible God has redeemed us. And so we stand as a people, as a person, as a child of God, redeemed. Guilt taken away, sin covered over and, take, and, and atoned for. And then, so that's who we are. And then this God, oh my goodness, last week we, we looked at how incredible he is. His, how his, his eternal nature, his sovereign power, all these, these things about this God that you can't hardly even put into words or fathom and this picture of this place that's filled with smoke and all of his authority is on display in his glory. But this week, I think this is the characteristic of God that gets most misinterpreted. And that's the fact that this God is love. First John chapter 4, it just says it. God is love. But the truth is, we have a really puny and incomplete definition of love. And so it makes it really hard for us to understand who God is. And so it gets misinterpreted a lot. And, um, and so I want to jump right in here and, and go right back to Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to do something. You know, this will be the fourth time. If you've been here every week, this will be the fourth time that we have read this section and uh, kind of just out of reverence and maybe to bring some uh, significance to it, I, I want to ask if you guys would stand with me as I read it and, uh, and think what it would be like to be in this place with Isaiah and, uh, and just like it was the first time that you had read it. So Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, seating, uh, uh, seated upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this 
has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And this is our section for this morning. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Father, I'm asking you this morning that that you would say what you want to say. I know that your love and uh, your passion for us is beyond our comprehension and uh, I'm just asking that for a minute you would give us a glimpse of it that we would we would leave here with a with a new heart for you and I uh, ask that you do it to your glory amen I mean you can have a seat so if you look at this you know these things have happened and now Isaiah is in this room and we're given no indication that there are that there are other people in the room um, and yet this uh, God says this thing and I've always thought before because normally when this passage is taught the focus is on the here am I send me and Isaiah's response to this commission but but if you look at it it's not specific to Isaiah says that uh, he overheard the Lord saying who will go who will I send and who will go for us he overheard a conversation which is really interesting to me, too. It's like, you know, is, is the, he the only one in the room? And it's kind of like God's going, all right, who will I send? Who, who, who's going to go for us, you know? It's also this conversation, you know, you've got whom shall I send? This deity is one God. And yet there's the us of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's this, there's this conversation that's happening. Who, who's gonna, who are we going to send? Who's going to go for us? And I wish we had audio and video because it feels a little bit like a text that gets mis- misunderstood, you know? Like, is the emphasis on which syllable in this thing, you know? I sent a, a text to Terry yesterday, and I thought about all the different ways that it could be received. Uh, she was at the store, and I said, where are you? Now, that could mean, where are you? Could mean, I'm concerned. Where, where are you? You know, there's about 20 different ways you could take, where are you? And here we've got something's happening and there's this conversation happening with the Trinity and and Isaiah's there and they're saying, hey, who's going to go and take this message to the people? And Isaiah says, hey, hey, I'm over here. (laughs) Here am I. Let Let me go do it. Which is absolutely amazing and there's a whole lot that could be said about Isaiah's calling and then what he goes and does. I mean, kind of the biggest piece, it was a hard call and it ended, tradition says that it ended in his, his martyrdom. He, uh, this king uh, was chasing him. Isaiah climbed into a tree, I guess, that was, had a hollow part on the inside. But he, he let some of his garment hang out and didn't pull it all in. And uh, the king saw the fabric and just ordered that the tree be cut in half. So everybody thinks that uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where there's the roll call of faith, And it says that these are the people that the world was not worthy. And it says one of them was sawn in half. Everybody believes that that was likely Isaiah. So he took this call and he lived a life in response to it. And that's absolutely amazing. But, you know, his obedience amazes me. But I think what amazes me even more is the fact that this God would let this guy do this thing. I mean, think about it. He allowed him to come into his presence. A man in the presence of God just burns up, right? 
and he recognizes his, his brokenness and his separation, how he was unworthy to be in that place, and that he deserved judgment. But God didn't judge him. Then he, he, uh, he knew that he deserved something, but instead he got mercy. But not just mercy. Then God went the next step, right, and, and took his guilt away and gave, him, gave the thing he didn't deserve. He gave him grace. But then he didn't just stop there. Now he's invited him to be a part of the bigger picture of what God is doing on the planet and to, to upgrade his, his involvement in the whole thing. Not just mercy, not just grace. Now this incredible partnership in the bigger plan. Sound like an infomercial yet? <laughs> not just this, oh, but then you get two of these. Oh, but hey, right now, if you'll call in time. No, God goes one and then he trumps it and then it's the next one and then it gets bigger and then it gets bigger. Uh, lately, uh, we've got some friends and I've been learning some about uh, Jewish culture. And the last two years, we've gotten to be a part of a, of a real a kind of a, an authentic Passover. And one of the things, both years, that really stuck out to me, there's this phrase that in the Passover celebration comes up again and again and again. It's, it's this word, dayanu, and it means uh, that would have been enough for us. And so in the context of the Passover, you say, you know, you brought us out of Egypt. And if you had stopped there, God, and that's all you would have done, dayanu, it would have been enough for us. But, but you didn't just stop there. And if you, had, if you had executed judgment on the Egyptians for all of the things that they had done, Dainu, that would have been enough for us. But you, but you didn't just stop there. Because then you parted the Red Sea. Oh, God, if, if you had parted the Red Sea and you had stopped there, Dainu, that would have been enough for us. But you, you didn't. Then you provided for us in the wilderness in all of these crazy ways. And if you had... And it just keeps on going on. That would have been enough. You would have been amazing if you had stopped there. That would have been enough. But Dianu, Dianu, Dianu. And that's what I, it feels like when you read this Isaiah. It's like if God had just done this for Isaiah, Dianu. But he didn't. He, he did this. And that would have been enough. But it's even further and it's further and it's further. And he brings him closer and closer and closer in this intimate relationship. Because God is love. not a transaction it's not a some sort of uh, heartless it, it, he is love and I think it's interesting that the two ways that um, you really see in the scriptures of this relationship described is that of a father with his sons and daughters and you know Jesus in the church is this this bridegroom and his bride in both of those relationships are very close and very intimate. And something I've also, I've also being a father and, and being a, a, a husband, I've seen that those are the two relationships that, that take away all the fluff the quickest, you know? That all the things that might cover up love and make it look really uh, nice and sweet, <laughs> those are the relationships that, that put it in the, you know, in the cooker and all of a sudden things start to surface. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen it no other place more than, than in marriage. You know, I, I, uh, it, you haven't been married very long if there hasn't been at least one day that you looked across the table and thought, what in the fiery place of eternal punishment was I thinking? 
when I decided to marry this person, you know? That, that they usually happens in the morning, right? Because, I mean, I tell the babies that there's no monsters in the closet. But there must be a monster in the closet that comes out and tries to take away everything that could possibly be attractive about you overnight. And when you wake up in the morning, what's left over, you know? And, and you know, I, I don't have any hair, so it's not that I get the ratty hair thing, but, uh, but I can actually taste the bad breath. When you can taste bad breath, you know that it's bad. And, and I'm pretty confident that it's like a, a skunk that ate a bunch of rotten eggs and then crawled down my throat overnight and died. And the carcass is just, you know, and, and you can taste that it's that bad. And so if, if I roll over and say good morning and Terry, like, stays with me another day, that's absolutely amazing. Because that's, that's the reality of, of love. You know, when we, when we were dating and everything was fun and we only saw each other when we were all made up and, and fixed up and had the cologne on, you know, which is rare for me. But, you know, then, then man, those, but then when you start to really see each other for who you really are. I was listening to Johnny Cash the other day and I thought it described Terry and I really well. You know that song, Jackson, that goes, uh, we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout thought about that for a second that's that's exactly what happened and then we've been trying to the last last 20 years we've been trying to figure out what you know what the world we just did and uh our honeymoon was uh we we were too young to get a rental car so we went to san antonio because you could walk the river walk you know and and do some things and uh man awesome we got uh this uh this hotel that we got to stay in that somebody provided for us and it was a uh, it's called the davy crockett and it was kind of an older building, and it had this southwestern motif. And we walked to the room, we kind of looked at each other. It was just awkward, you know? Had bo- those bole things on the window. Anyway, uh, and then we pulled back and looked at the scene, and it overlooked the Alamo. And we had no idea what kind of foreshadowing that was <laughs> for the next few years, you know? And so we come back, and we're hanging out with some friends, and they finally say, hey, you, you, probably, you guys probably need some counseling. So they start meeting with us, and one of the first things they do, which I would really encourage, they, they do this personality test. And we take it, and we find out, oh, well, this makes sense. We're, we're opposites. So a lot of the things that we're struggling in are opposites. And you know these personality tests, they, have, they tie to like animals or movie characters so that you can kind of get a better picture of who it is. So, uh, you know, the lion or the beaver or whatever, or the otter. Um, and then I, I saw one the other day that was Star Wars. It was like, hey, Obi-Wan or, you know, C-3PO, you know, which one are you going to be? Well, ours is probably would better be, I don't know if this one's out there, but horror films, you know? And, uh, and I feel like the perfect profile, my description, is probably uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know? Because Freddie, you know, is a dreamer, uh, pretty, pretty outspoken, likes to talk a lot. His weapon of choice are those long, like, swords or knives on his fingers because he does his work up close and personal, you know? Terry's more like Friday the 13th. And, uh, you know, Jason had the mask, and he was pretty quiet and reserved and then uh but his weapon yielded a lot more pain it just took a little bit further to swing you know so here we've got freddie and jason that's our first year a couple years of marriage right there and and we've had to figure out what it looks like not just to like each other not just to live under the same roof but to 
to love one another. When Terry moved to our hometown, one of the first times that I was really around her, we were in journalism class together, and we went to the newspaper office just to kind of learn about the newspaper. But I don't even know what was said that day because I saw her across the room, and I really was looking around at everybody else like, do you guys feel the electricity? I, like, I think there's a short in a, in a machine or something. Like, I can feel a thousand volts rolling through my veins. And I also think that something happened to the gravitational pull because I can't stand here and she's over there. I have to get as close as I can as quickly as possible. And if my pinky rubs up against her elbow, I think I might just blow up. I mean, that's, that's what it was like. Now, if my pinky rubs her elbow, she's like, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll take a step this way, you know? Life, life starts to, to do that to us. Um, but you know what? Because love is deeper than that, and you start to find the, the, what love really is and its depths. I mean, man... God has called us and moved us and we've done all kinds of crazy things and I've made a, a lot of really bad mistakes and I've looked like an idiot a whole lot of days. And Terry, the most attractive thing that she's ever done, more attractive than her all fixed up, although that's beautiful, more attractive, is the moment that she's looked at me and said, I'm with you. In, in a really, really hard situation or where I'm acting like an idiot for her to say the words I am with you and to know that she means it now that's, that's deeper than just the love you hear on, <laughs> on the radio right there's, there's something there um, to watch her you know for us to have four kiddos and to watch her belly expand like uh, like that stretchy doll you know that Stretch Armstrong. I mean, we got, we got a picture where her belly, I don't know if, if it looks like it had to have been photoshopped because how does a belly get that big with twins, you know? But, and to raise them, my goodness. But it's the depth of that that I've, I've discovered that love is what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says it is, right? Uh, let's pull that up. I mean, this is, this is the description of love in the scriptures. Love is patient and kind Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. Look at that. To be patient and not to be irritated, though, that means that you're, you're self-sacrificing. Keeps no record of being wronged. Does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. The description of, of love in the Bible is this, this thing that's not easy, that's not free by any means that it's costly and at the end of the day it's very valuable and this is what our God is is love and there's this other prophet uh, his name's Hosea and God asked Hosea to demonstrate what it looks like God asked this Hosea guy to go and, and to marry a prostitute so that he could experience for himself what it felt like to be portrayed and what true love meant. And so he could feel it, experience it, demonstrate it, and talk about it. And so Isaiah does it. He, he goes and he marries this girl who's, who's a prostitute. 
and goes okay for a while, and they have a few children. And then she starts uh, sneaking out at night, and he knows and is suspicious. Sooner or later, she's not there at all anymore. And he, he goes and he seeks her out, and he finds her at the, at the bottom of that whole thing. She's now a slave being sold at auction. And Hosea goes, and he takes everything that he has, and he buys his wife back into himself. And then he commits his devotion and desire for renewed intimacy with her. And there's this section, uh, Hosea chapter 2, where, where God is saying, hey, this is, this is what it looks like. This is what my people have done. They've gone and they've loved on others. They have betrayed me. And you guys, I don't know. I mean, there's a few times, you know, dating in high school and things that I got cheated on. And I don't know that there's any worse pain that you could do to somebody than to betray that love. And here's the picture that God gives. This is what my people do when they go and my affection and my attention goes to something else in their lives and they have a passion that's bigger than the passion for me for other things, then I'm betrayed. And yet, I'm going to go, I'm going to seek them out, I'm going to buy them at my own sacrifice, and then I want renewed intimacy. And so this place in Hosea chapter 2 He basically says, I'm going to pull my people aside in the wilderness, almost like I'm going to get them alone and speak those sweet words into their ears. And at the end of that section, this is what he says at the end of Hosea uh, chapter 2. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as Lord. Not, not just that, that he would not go and chase him down and be angry. No, Dianu. He's going to go and set her free. But not just that he's going to set her free and have mercy. Dianu. He's going he's to have grace and want to be with her again. But not just that he's going to want to be with her again. It's much more than that. He wants to have this intimate relationship once again and restore it. And at the end, he says that you will know me. And if you've read the Bible much at all, you know that know a lot of times in the Bible, and I think this is one of those times that know doesn't just mean know about. It talks about a man knowing his wife. It means, it means intimacy, that, that God desires to have this, this close, intimate relationship. And that's what he wants again. Even though we've betrayed, even though we've turned our back, even though we've gone our own way, he would seek us out, he would find us, he would forgive us, our sins would, go, would our guilt would go away, our sin would be atoned for, but not just that. He would want to be close to us again. This is the, the love of God that has to be described as reckless, extravagant, scandalous this is the living God he loves you that much it's not the cheap stuff so this morning you know we've left a little time at the end uh, like we have the last few weeks to sing a few more songs than the normal these songs are directed right at 
us communicating from our heart how passionately we love our God. And I'm going to challenge you to think about the words. To think about your heart. Does he have your mind? Or does he have your heart? Does he have your rote devotion? Or does he have all of you? And um, I'm going to ask that he would do that. Let me pray for us. Father, I am... I'm aware this morning that uh, it's really easy for us to to do this this thing and uh, and make it about the do's and the don'ts and for you to uh, to let you be distant and for our affections and our eyes to turn on things that are around us and that are that feel more tangible and uh, God I'm just going to ask you that you would do a work deep in us that we would realize and see how much you love us, that we would, that we would feel that love and that we would respond and uh, draw near to you, draw near to you with our hearts, that uh, when somebody would look into our eyes, that they would see that we are a people who are head over heels, that we are uh, totally ruined in love with you. And uh, just like Isaiah, love causes you to do really crazy things. And I pray that that's what would be true of us, that the only way our lives would make sense is if it could be described as a person who is, who is desperately in love for his God. So, Father, I ask that you would make that true to your glory. Amen.